I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 17, 2 Samuel chapter 17, as we look together at verses 15 to 29, 15 to 29. In this portion of 2 Samuel, we find the great King David at maybe the lowest ebb of his life, the lowest point. While we've seen the heights of his glory and majesty in Israel, such as when he defeated the great giant Goliath, at this point, he is at a low point. He is banished from Jerusalem with his tail between his legs, wandering around in a desert. While his own son has undermined his kingdom and now sits on his throne in Jerusalem. Could it get any worse? David appears weak. His kingdom appears to have reached its conclusion. And it seems that there's no hope for King David. And this is a fitting word for us today. As we consider the place of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world today. Survey after survey, poll after poll, tells us the same trend is underway. And that trend is that these are not bright days for institutional forms of religion. Membership in churches, mosques, and synagogues has never been lower since this data has been tracked. And as we just think about the church, consider the sharp contrast between what we were just celebrating on Easter, that Jesus is risen, that he is Lord of all. The greatness and the goodness of that gospel message that we proclaim or should be proclaiming and that we should believe. And the state of the church, at least in this country. And in the main, the church is marked by weakness, by smallness, by reduction, but what we find in these verses is the remedy to reverse that, the remedy to reverse that, and it's the same remedy that can reverse spiritual weakness in your personal life when you're at a low point and we all reach low points in our lives. The ingredients for rekindling your love for God, your passion for His cause, it's right here. And while so many prescriptions to reverse the trend have us look outward, what can we do to get those people out there back in here? While so many prescriptions take that approach, what we find here is something entirely different. 
what we find here tells us that before we look out there, we need to look in here within our own lives, within our own church, and ask whether or not these ingredients are present in our hearts and in our church. Those ingredients key on one often overlooked individual, a Bible character many of us have never even heard of. His name is Hushai. And while he has his vices, to be sure, he is the remnant. He is the final hope for David's kingdom. As David is making his way out of Jerusalem, in shame, in weakness, much of it brought about by his own guilt before God and his own sinfulness, he sends back Hushai, his friend, to be a secret agent inside of Absalom's kingdom. And he tells Hushai, I want you to cozy up to Absalom. I want you to let Absalom trust you. And in this way, you're going to overthrow what Absalom has set in motion. And Hushai is doing just that. But what we see right here is that Hushai is able to prioritize what is most pressing. He knows the things that simply cannot wait. And I believe one of the greatest causes of spiritual weakness in our personal lives and in the church is when we don't know what is most pressing. A failure to prioritize. And whether you are a Christian or not, we know prioritization is vital. We can't be urgent about everything. Not everything is pressing. So how do we decide what is truly pressing? What truly demands our best efforts right now? And any productivity guru will tell you the same thing. You must be able to prioritize what needs to be done now and what can wait. What we see in Hushai is someone who knows what is most pressing. And who, because of his prioritization, his willingness to put it all on the line for God's king, David, sets in motion a chain of events leading to other people who are willing to put it all on the line for God's king. And I pray today that God would raise up more Hushais in our midst. May the ingredients that are present in Hushai be kindled in your heart and in your life so that you see this truth. You will only be able to prioritize what is most pressing when you are wholeheartedly persuaded that the cause of King Jesus, God's ultimate king, 
takes precedence above everything else. The cause of King Jesus and the cause of his kingdom in this world takes precedence above everything else. No matter how good, no matter how praiseworthy, the cause of his kingdom takes precedence. That's what we need to be more fully persuaded of, wholeheartedly persuaded of that. Hushai was, how can we be persuaded as well? So that we are able to prioritize what is truly pressing and experience vitality and strength in the Lord. Well, let's pick up our reading in verse 15. Hushai told Zadok, And Abiathar, the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have advised him to do so and so. Now, send a message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over without fail, or the king and all the people with him will be swallowed up. Pausing here. Here's what went down just prior to this. Absalom knows that he needs to eliminate his father, David, to really solidify his grip on Israel. And so he seeks out the advice of his counselors. The first counselor is a man named Ahithophel, who was once David's chief advisor, but who defects and betrays David. His advice is, Absalom, you need to strike now. David's weak, he's down, hit him now. Don't wait. Seems reasonable, good advice. Then Absalom turns to Hushai. And Hushai, of course, is really on David's team. He's a double agent. And so what he says to Absalom is directed at buying more time for David. Buying more time. And what he says is, no, 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 no. Absalom, don't don't go out there now. And you need to lead them yourself when the time comes. But first, you need to gather more forces. Gather more forces, and then when you have all Israel with you, then you can really eliminate David. And we're told that this advice seemed good to Absalom. And it seemed better than the advice of Ahithophel. And the narrator tells us, that this is all in keeping with God's purposes. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. So Hushai knows that his speech was effective. It's a beautiful speech. Great imagery, powerful language, very eloquent. And what he could have done is to sit back and say, all right, well, I did my part. Now, I'm sure Absalom will follow my my advice, but that's not what he does. What does he do? He acts with urgency and immediacy. He knows he needs to get word to David because he's not absolutely sure whether or not Absalom is going to follow his advice. He gave it his best shot, gave a great speech, but he's not absolutely certain that that's what Absalom is going to do. So, he sends a message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. And if you look back when David is leaving, the priests bring the ark and they want to go with David, but David tells them, no, no, no. 
I want you to keep the ark of God in Jerusalem, and if God brings me back, then that will be a sign of God's favor in my life, and I want you, the priest, to stay there. But, but I want you to tell your sons to be my lines of communication while I'm in the wilderness. So David makes this plan for his return. And so Hushai activates that line of communication here. He tells the information to the priests so that the priests in turn can tell their sons. And so in turn, David will get word of what Absalom is scheming to do. So what difference does that make? What we need to remember in Hushai's action here is that we are to put present demands, present demands above past deeds. Put present demands above past deeds. Prioritize what is right in front of you and the needs that are right in front of you. Again, Hushai gave a great speech, but he's not resting in that. He's not resting in that. He knows this calls for immediate action. And the word that is driving this narrative is what you see in verse 16. Now, send a message at once, at once. That's going to be repeated three times. At once, act, move. This is urgent. This is a top priority because of the cause of God's king. But our tendency is to rest in past deeds. And for church folks, we are especially prone to do this. We rest in what we've done in the past. We say, oh, I, I answered the preacher's call. I came down the aisle. I said the sinner's prayer, maybe. I got baptized. I'm a member of the church. Oh, and I continue to tithe. I continue to give to the church. I'm good, right? Well, that's great. I'm so glad you did that. But what are you doing now? You say, oh, I went on that mission trip. Oh, man, that was powerful. That was a spiritual high in my life. Well, that's wonderful. But what about now? Is the same vitality and strength present now? But our tendency is to fall back on what we've done in the past. Isn't that good enough? And maybe even people who, who haven't spent a lot of time in the church, they like to say, well, I, I prayed during that time, that health crisis, or I, I prayed for my loved one, or we pray over meals, or that prayer we said back at Thanksgiving, oh, I meant it. That's great. That's good. What are you doing now? Hushai doesn't just rely on what he had done. He knows that he's not absolutely sure what Absalom's going to do. So he needs to act with immediacy, with urgency, to prioritize the cause of God's king here and now. And part of what's driving his urgency is that he knows what the stakes are. Absalom is wicked. He has all the worst qualities in a leader. He is all about himself. He's not worried about his people. He's all about me, me, me. And so Hushai knows that the stakes could not be higher. And then we have, on the other side, God's chosen king, David, the one through whom God 
has promised an eternal kingdom. And all of God's promises and all of God's plans run through David. The stakes are high, and so he has to act now. Likewise, for you and for me now, do you realize that we are in the middle of a war? Yes, we are. A spiritual war. Not against anything visible, but against invisible powers and principalities. Not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual darkness. Do you realize that that's what the stakes are? And right now, the power of the evil one is permeating this world. And while, yes, we proclaim Jesus crucified and risen and one day returning, until then, we need to realize that the enemy has not been completely defeated yet. He means to have you and have me. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told that Satan, your enemy, is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's right, he's in this room right now looking for someone to devour, to lull you into complacency, to think, oh, I can put it off. This isn't that important. This is just another sermon. I'll hear another one next week. Now, of course, we are modern, sophisticated people. We don't believe in the devil, do we? Well, no, we don't believe in the cartoonish caricature with horns and a pitchfork. But the real Satan would love nothing more than for you to think of him that way. Because as long as you think of him as a caricature, as a cartoon, you won't take him seriously, will you? I don't have to worry about that. Oh, but what he wants more than anything is for you to put this off, to not have a sense of urgency, to prioritize the things that don't really matter, that aren't pressing. He wants you to rest in what you've accomplished and be proud about that. He would love nothing more because then you are irrelevant. And churches that fall prey to that become irrelevant. Be on guard. Know the stakes. Put present demands. What God is demanding of you right now in this moment. Above and before past deeds. Well, let's see the chain that is set in motion now. Verse 17. Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at in Rogel. A female servant was to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man in Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, 
No one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So we have Jonathan and Ahimaaz, the sons of the priests, and they're staying at En Rogel. This is about 300 yards south of the city of Jerusalem. So they're not in the city. They're at a way station along the way so that they won't be seen and so that word can be passed and relayed through them to David secretly. And so the one who carries the message is a female servant, but as she's passing along the message, a spy for Absalom sees. And so then they have to hide and they climb into a well. And then we have this character of the man's wife covering the well and spreading grain over it. So it looks like it's just out to dry. And then she tells a lie and the chase goes cold for the informants of Absalom. And what we need to notice here is how each character is acting with great personal risk. Great personal risk. They are sacrificing their lives for the cause of God's king. And they are playing their part faithfully. So today, I challenge you, put your part before and above your personal preferences. Play your part. Put your role, what God has called you to do, where he has placed you, above your personal preferences. Knowing that there will be setbacks. Just consider how all of this would have been different if, say, Jonathan and Ahimaaz had said, whoops, I guess we can't do that one. We've already been spotted. guess David's on his own. Or what if this woman had said, get out of my well. What are you doing in there? Are you trying to get me in trouble? Are you trying to get me arrested? Get out of there. Or what if she had told, under pressure and duress, the informants of Absalom, yep, they're in the well. Go ahead, take them. Now pay me my reward. You know she would have been rewarded very well, and her husband and her whole family would have prospered if she had only told on them. But in each case, in this chain of people who know what is truly pressing, they know the cause of God's king is pressing above all, they sacrifice their preferences. Can the same be said of you and of me and of the church today or not? I'm afraid part of the reason for our spiritual weakness is that the church, at least in the United States of America, is spoiled rotten. Spoiled rotten. Why? Because we have a buffet of churches to choose from. If you don't like the preaching in this church, if you don't like the music here, you can just go down the road and find another one. You don't think the, the pews are cushy enough here? You can find another church 
where you can even drink coffee in the sanctuary. Now, isn't that convenient? Oh, yeah. We're spoiled rotten. We don't want to sacrifice anything. We don't want it to cost anything to follow Jesus. We don't want to sacrifice sleep. We don't want to give too much money. We don't want to serve too much and overburden ourselves. We, don't, we want it to be as convenient as possible, right? It's like when you hand out an assignment to write a paper in school and everyone asks, how long does it have to be? And what we really mean is how short can it be to still get a good grade, right? And we approach our discipleship in a similar way. What's the bare minimum that I can do to still be considered a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? We don't want to sacrifice anything. And so I ask you today, is your discipleship costing you anything right now? Be honest. Are are there any real consequences for being a follower of Jesus in this world? Because somehow in our twisted, sinful way of thinking, we can act like God exists for us instead of realizing we exist for God. That you and I were created to, to know and to glorify and to enjoy Him forever. And sometimes we can act like the church exists for us instead of realizing that we exist for the church. And we start wondering, what can this church give me? What can it give my family? What can it add to my life? And it's just like any other membership, right? You pay your dues and you get the rewards. What are the amenities that come at this church? Right? You you visit an apartment and they'll tell you about, oh, we've got a weight room, we've got a pool, we've got so many amenities, you want to live in this neighborhood, right? Right? We are spoiled rotten. We need to wake up and ask ourselves, what is it costing me? Because remember this, salvation is free. God's grace is free to you and to me. You can't buy it. You can't inherit it. You can't do anything to earn it. But discipleship will cost you everything. And in verse 23, we have a sad and tragic example of what it looks like to not get our priorities straight. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Ahithophel, the one whose advice, we were told, was put on par with God. David trusted him. Absalom trusted him. And now God has thwarted him. He has frustrated his advice. He has made his good, effective advice seem foolish in the eyes of Absalom and others. And so with that, he packs up his bags and he goes home. They don't want to play with him anymore. So he goes home, and we have these tragic, tragic lines. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. 
And of course, as readers who know the New Testament, we can't help but hear echoes of Judas Iscariot, another betrayer, and the fate that he brought upon himself. So we have Ahithophel, who prioritizes everything except the one thing that matters most. And today, I challenge you to put your life above your pride. Put your life above your pride. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. What good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your life, lose your soul? Consider Ahithophel's resume. Service in the kingdom of David. Service in the kingdom of Absalom. Advice second to none. A chief counselor. He's worked in the greatest administrations in Israel. And his house is in order. All of his possessions, everything he's accumulated for himself, it's in order, it's beautiful, it's in place. But his life is doomed. And it's taken. It reminds us of the parable that the Lord Jesus told in Luke 12. A farmer has an especially prosperous year, and he thinks to himself, you know what I should do? I need to build bigger barns, and I'm going to take all my accumulated wealth, and I'm going to fill these barns with that. Wouldn't that be great? And once I do that, oh boy, (laughs) I can sit back, take it easy. And in the middle of the night, these words come, you fool. This very night, your life, your soul is demanded of you. This is what it looks like to misprioritize your life, to have your priorities upside down, where your accomplishments are everywhere. They're in order. They're beautiful. They're commended. You have the respect and the, and the commendation of your neighbors and your parents. And your coworkers, everyone says, now that is an outstanding citizen. That is someone worthy of emulation. But your soul, have you attended to your soul? Have you come to God to find what only He can give? The water, the living water. The bread of life that you truly need. Or not. Seek the Lord while he may be found, Isaiah tells us. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You never know when your life, when your soul may be demanded of you. Are you sitting back in comfort and at ease, resting in your preferences, in your conveniences, or are you attending to what matters above all? And the way you attend to what matters above all is to focus on the Lord Jesus. Who is he to you today? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? Is he King? Is his cause worthy of everything you can give or not? David 
also acted with haste. And let's see what God brought about because David responded with obedience in verse 24. David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of Jether, an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash and sister of Zeruiah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness." Here's what David has to do. Not only does he have to cross a river, the Jordan River, he has to then march 30 miles to Mahanaim. 30 miles with Absalom and his army hot on his tail. And where's God calling him to go? The wilderness. This looks like a retreat. This looks like a step backward. Why would God want him to go there? And when you face down Jesus' call to discipleship, you may think, why would I do that? Why would I give up this comfort? Why would I give up this convenience? I don't want to go to the wilderness. I don't want to go to the desert. Why would I answer that? And and so our uncertainties and our fears kick in. But what David does and what we need to do as well is to put God's call above our uncertainties. You don't want to cross the Jordan River. You don't want to go there. But the testimony of this scripture is that God can turn your wilderness into an oasis of His grace. In his provision. All these names here mean nothing to us, but when you take a deeper look, notice who it is that's aiding and abetting David. Shobi of the Ammonites. Well, this is the same nation that David had waged war against in 2 Samuel 10. These are the same people who had rejected his offers of kindness and sought to eliminate David and his kingdom. And here we have his enemy coming to him and providing comfort, food, and blessing. Machir is a descendant of the family of Saul. He was someone who took care of Mephibosheth. Saul, David's rival, the same man who tried to kill David time and time again, one of his descendants is offering blessing and care to David. Barzillai is from east of the Jordan River. These are all people who are enemies of David. And do you see how Isaiah 55 is being fulfilled? Surely you, speaking of God's Messiah, you will summon nations you know not 
And nations you do not know will come running to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. People from all over are coming to see David as the true and rightful king. They are blessing him instead of cursing him. His own son is cursing him, but people out there are coming. And so we go back to what launched this chain of events. It was Hushai and Hushai's willingness to put the cause of God's king first above his own life, above his own welfare, above anything else. And that set in motion this chain of events that leads to this blessing. Now, God may not bless you materially in your time of wilderness. I want to be clear about that. But there is blessing. Don't underestimate what God can do when you find yourself in a wilderness. When you believe you are deprived of the things you need, the things you want, don't underestimate what God can do there. But we're left with our own consciences, our own lives, our own souls. Will you be like Hushai or not? Will you put this off? Maybe I'll, I'll think about it again next Sunday. Maybe I'll just I'll keep waiting for more revelation. Hear what the Lord Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Maybe that's you today. Of course you'll follow Jesus wherever. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you willing to experience some inconvenience? Are you willing to have the cost of discipleship really cost you something or not? He said to another man, follow me. But that man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Can I at least say goodbye to my family? I mean, doesn't my family take priority in my life? Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I pray that you would put your hand to the plow today. That you would get to work in the cause of God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would see Him as Lord of your life. And I pray that that would be immediate and urgent. That you would see this as the most pressing decision in your life today. Never mind what you have for lunch today. Never mind what you're going to do tomorrow. Here and now, who is Jesus to you? And I pray that he would be Lord of all. But if you answer his call, remember, no one who looks back, no one who puts even good things, even family, even things that are praiseworthy above him is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Are you all in or not? Are you ready to put it all on the line for King Jesus or not? I pray that you would, by his grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us now as we go to the Lord in prayer.
Dear Lord, we thank you for how you can use characters we overlook, characters we gloss over, characters we consider to be irrelevant to our daily affairs. You can use them to speak to us with immediacy and with power. And I pray that we would see in Hushai the ingredients that we need, the remedy, the prescription that we need to know more power, more vitality, more joy in our discipleship as individuals and in the life of this church. May we see it clearly. And I pray that you would raise up in this church more who shies, people who get it, people who know the stakes, people who are willing to put it all on the line for your son, believing that your son has done for us on the cross what we could never do for ourselves, that he has made atonement for our sins, that he has been raised from the dead, and that there is no power on earth that can put him back in the grave. There is no power in this world that can reverse what he has set in motion. May we today be fully persuaded that that is true, wholeheartedly persuaded that is true. May we say yes, may we surrender, may we yield to the power of your Holy Spirit speaking to us now. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.